Hey guys, Bruce from Prince Alva. Welcome back to the podcast. Got a really special episode that we're going to jump into in just a little bit with some early people over at Teespring. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of them as they've really rebounded recently, more in the influencer world. But anyway, we're going to get into that, their journey, their ups, their downs. It was a really cool story. But first, we've got Mr. Matt Marcotte and Stephen Farrig over at Campus Inc. We're hanging out. Um, Matt, you were just over at a Corneetware shop a week ago, I saw on Instagram. Yeah, yeah just, just about a week ago. Um, it was something that, it, it, honestly, it came into my inbox. Just, hey, Corneet's going to be in town. They want to talk about some of their equipment, and it's going to be at Gibson Steakhouse. And I was like, I don't know a whole <laughs> lot about Corneet, to be honest. I would like to know more. Uh, they're a big, big player in the digital space, uh, uh, direct-to-garment, um, a whole bunch of stuff. And I like steak. I mean, so there was, it was kind of a win-win. Um, so yeah, I, I went out to the event, uh, ran into some friends that, that run some shops that I had, had been working with throughout the years and, uh, learned a whole bunch about, uh, their, their direct to garment presses, as well as their entire, uh, mini factory cut and sew units that they have where it's, uh, direct from, uh, point of sale, uh, e-commerce straight through to actually digitally printing onto all sorts of different substrates and then CAD cutting and just dropping out of a machine where people can start to sew one-offs uh, live time pretty much. So seeing everything from that as well as their production flow software. So again, the software they've got that goes straight plugs into your Shopify store or wherever you're hosting, right? And it can go straight through the entire process straight to your direct garment machine all the way through shipping. It's, it's really interesting seeing how some of these large-scale uh, production facilities that are doing uh, direct fulfillment like that, what their options are out there in the marketplace. And I hadn't quite really dove into that corn eat world yet. So it was really interesting uh, to see and learn more about it. So, I mean, yeah, an opportunity for some free education uh, and a really good steak, you know you're going to find me there. So where was Jeff Bezos? Was he at the dinner? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was actually sitting behind me. He's really annoyed okay. to look around my big head. Um, gotcha. But, uh, I mean, they put the important people in front, right? So, yeah. um, <laughs> no, but, I mean, that, that was something that is definitely of interest, too. Uh, Amazon uh, does own uh, a large portion of that company now. Uh, and from my understanding, a lot of it was because of that software uh, process of actually keeping track of all, all the jobs in queue and that entire flow. So definitely something of value to look at. And as we start to really, really see the e-commerce, I mean, it's already happened, right? 2020, the e-commerce shift, um, something like 66% of all garments sold in the world were sold online. Um, so so Jeff starting Bezos, to see a lot more of that. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening to this, if you're in outer space, if you're not yet and, you know, you're trying to kill some time, you can buy my company. I'll put, you know what? I'll sell Printavo to you too. Um, <laughs> Amazon, come on in. Just uh, I'll retire now. I'm good. I'm just I'll have to do some research because I, I remember looking at that Amazon note. I remember people talking about that, but I thought it was like 3% or 4%, not uh, a huge piece, but pretty significant is, um, you know, Corneet is, uh, I have to look at their market cap, but. Yeah, they're a publicly traded company now, I think, right? Five and a half billion dollar company, yeah, so. Yeah, and I, I, do, um, I think you're right. It's, it's somewhere between 3 and 5% is what uh, what Amazon owns, but. I mean, Amazon buying any amount of your company tends to mean something is of, of value there, right? So sure. uh, interesting to see where that goes in that space. But yeah, it was super, super interesting seeing what they can do. I mean, just the, it's no mystery that I'm a, a screen print purist, right? Nothing in my opinion will beat a screen print, but 
where I've seen the evolution of directed garment happen just in the last like two years alone, right? Now that they can have one unit that can actually DTG on all substrates, right? You can go over poly, you can go over cotton. Before it was like, mm -mm, nope, it's, it's one or the other. Uh, seeing what they can now do as they continue to evolve and more money and time gets put into chemistry and process and uh, the t-shirts, all that stuff. It's really interesting watching its evolution and it's, it's starting to hit that, uh, that apex point where it gets faster and faster. Right. So, uh, definitely something that I wanted to check out. And I'm glad that I did. Yeah. I mean, it flows right in line with everything lean. Um, I was just, I just finished that two second lean book, which was really good, but, uh, you know, the reduction of inventory, the reduction of time, the reduction of pre-created supplies, um, the, uh, you know, just more just in time manufacturing it, it, it 100% aligns with that. Obviously there's still that investment in time aspect. Where, where does digital play a part in your shop, Steven? Um, you know, we're not a, a, we're not a shop that I think is ready for like digital squeegee. We don't do a ton of SIM process. We don't have huge SIM process runs. Um, we do a lot of DTG and I would almost call it like the printful model. Um, we're trying to call it like decorate on demand, not necessarily like print on demand because we heavily use like super color transfers, uh, for a lot of our e-commerce, uh, where we'll order, you know, 30 or 40 transfers. We'll have them on the shelf order comes in from Shopify next day. We will, sh you know, heat transfer order from SNS and, and, and heat transfer and get it out. Um, I think there's going to be a, a spot for it at some point. Um, but I don't know if we're we're there quite yet, but we're, you know, and people have asked, are you going to buy a, whatever is it, DTF machine or something like now super color's great. Um, but we're doing a lot more decoration on demand is, is the best way to put it. Um, so it's coming. That's, that's where the internet is going. You know, that makes sense. You, you actually brought up something around people can't wait for their stores to close for you to fulfill stuff anymore, which, which is funny saying that because it was really only probably a eight week or, or I'm sorry, eight month or 12 month cycle, um, where that changed. So does that mean that it is a lot more transfers or, or is it stocking stuff? If somebody, you know, is going to pump volume? Uh, I think it's, you know, part of our industry is that we don't carry inventory, right? As a screen printer, you get an order, you order the merch, you print it, you ship it out. Not a lot of spoilage, not a lot of waste. That is a pretty lean process in itself, right? Uh, compared to a, you know, like in the book, a cabinet manufacturer that has to keep like wood on their shelves or stain or things like that. Really, the only things we have to keep on our shelf is ink and kind of the consumables that, that we buy. So I think it's, it's all about, can you speed up the custom process, right? So if someone places a bulk order today, how quickly can I get it in my shop and printed and out the door? Um, and that means we have to be better with SNS. That means that's why we use GraphX because our steps are done in hours, no longer days. And that's why we're focusing on, you know, uh, direct to screen so we can register quickly. So I don't know if digital is going to hit at some point in there. But I think our industry is already trying to, to, to crunch it a little bit. And we're just going to have to do it more, you know, um, because people can't wait. We do close down merch stores. We will do a couple runs of merch stores now if we see that a store is going off and doing really well. Um, but with our Shopify stores, people expect us to be Amazon. You know, I don't know, Matt, when you guys do Sound and Fury stuff, like you, people, people want to know where their stuff's at, right? 
People want it quick. I mean, Sound and Fury, it, it's definitely a little bit uh, a little bit easier because it's a, a small company, a smaller brand, and we can kind of control that uh, entire process. But when I was running uh, production at Second City and seeing a, a master like Stevie who's running this giant fulfillment, uh, an e-commerce solution, it, it was very different, right? It all depends on what the customer expects and what the customer is willing to pay for. So there, there was different options all the way through. Um, look, when orders come through, every couple of weeks we'll fulfill straight through. When an order comes through, we'll fulfill it the same day. So one's going to require printed inventory that we have to constantly, as we hit minimums, fulfill and print and then stock again. Um, but I mean, when I was running there, he had two buildings. One building was just production. One building was just full of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of finished goods, right? And then you've got massive teams just picking and packing, seeing things like digital squeegee, um, seeing things like more advanced uh, direct-to-garment, um, you had mentioned Supercolor and direct-to-film, things like that, transfers. I think we're already starting to see more of the the customer base. So the, the person who's, whose store you're hosting, right, or whose merch you're hosting, they're starting to see the benefit of the immediate and knowing they've got a shorter window in which to capture that audience. And I think we're going to see people willing to maybe be a little more lenient with how much money they're willing to pay for that premium uh, I mean, we joke, joke about Jeff Bezos, right? But the Amazon service, um, I think people are going to say, look, you know what, look, if you can fulfill it right away, but that means it costs me X amount more, fine, right? And I think that that also goes into how you need to determine how you're selling that service uh, and, and what that expectation really is. Because one, you have to have space, you have to have uh, inventory, you have to have more employees to fulfill. Uh, so you have to make sure that you're capturing for that on, on the charge. But again, being transparent about where on that spectrum do you want to be with the fulfillment? Speed is going to drive it. I mean, anything that that is continually faster to the customer and makes them feel good is just going to drive where the market continues to go. I yeah. mean, you know, when you get an email that you ordered something and then that it's been fulfilled two hours after or something like it feels good and companies aren't stupid they want to make customers feel good they want them to get their stuff um and keep moving so yeah it's just it, it's interesting it's interesting to think about it's cool though that that you got to go to that uh i didn't get an invite um steven didn't get an invite producer chris didn't get an invite so it was just just me and jeff bezos <laughs> they, they only invited the ones that mattered thanks jeff um okay i got a question for you guys Business-wise, personally, too, what would you say is an activity that you've done or, or created in COVID that you're going to stick to going forward? Figure up. Oh, boy. An activity that I started during COVID that I'm going to keep up. Is this a business process or is this a personal thing? Let's do both. Oh, boy. Um, we are much more virtual but we're actually a lot more efficient with our customers because any qualified customer is hopping on a zoom call with us they don't have to come into our shop um, and we're able to get on a zoom share screens pull up their adobe files we were with a client yesterday um, a thousand miles away and we had their design team illustrator was open our team and we nailed a whole order in an hour I don't think that's going away and it's actually making us better at sales because we're, we're much more efficient that way instead of so much back and forth email it drives me nuts. So a lot of zooms and a lot of looms. So the other part of that is uh, I send a ton of loom videos. Uh, I have it saved on my you know computer. If I need to edit something, 
quickly record a loom and I publish it out. Um, so zooms and looms. And I'm using looms a lot for, for standardizing the business and just sending them to people in the company. And I kind of have my own like library. Um, so that is not going away. So those are my two. Matt, what do you got? Uh, so for me, this is, I mean, it, it's a Printavo one, so it sh should make Bruce happy. But uh, with the automations that, that came out uh, a couple months back, having the ability to uh, apply tasks, that's honestly been a, a game changer for how we run Sound and Fury. Obviously, um, I'm not at Sound and Fury that often, but I do have work that I have to do to help out anything higher end SEPs, uh, process stuff. Anything like that. And before it was always, okay, back and forth emails, back and forth messages. And after my work day, I'd, I'd get to it and, and knock out what I could. Now, being able to trigger automations that just apply tasks to me makes it so much easier for me to knock something out over lunch, knock something out after work and just get things and then triggers right back to Mike. So we're actually, for being a smaller shop with only a few people, we're again, way more effective and efficient with less communication. And that communication, although it's nice, it oftentimes went other ways too. And it would end up taking longer in the day. He wasn't getting things done. I wasn't getting things done. We were having a talk about one thing that led to like six other things that really weren't pertinent. Um, so the ability to auto apply those tasks and just kind of live in a task list um, has definitely sharpened what Sound and Fury is able to produce and get done uh, day to day. Uh, and we're seeing it. I mean, this is the, the busiest year that the shops had, um, which is also great to kind of track that progress along as we go. Um, so using, using the automations and the task list has been a big thing that uh, I'm going to lean in heavier and heavier on. Uh, and the more robust those continue to grow out as the automations continue to improve as we iterate, uh, the more I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize those. So, Matt, when are you going uh, direct to screen? Um, as soon as Campus Inc. Uh, sponsors me and uh, purchases one, um, that's right then, or Jeff Bezos again. Um, <laughs> so Two-day screens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you won't have to buy it. That's funny. Um, what about personal one, though? Definitely getting away from the shop on certain days and working from home. I'm seeing that I'm getting a lot more work done, a little bit more balance, and I don't feel like I'm working super late into the night um, because I'm able to get away from the shop. Also doesn't let me go crazy trying to have OCD everywhere and like Hurricane Steven. Um, gives autonomy to my employees, sets the expectation that I'm not going to be there five days a week, um, and that's totally okay. So that's a personal one. So I think mine's hey, actually the, 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 I think I'm the what? opposite. I think, I think I need to spend less time working from home because you get a little cabin fevery. Um, so I think I actually need to get out one day a week, at least maybe go work from sound and fury or something just to get away or seem to like do something with these white walls at my house and just not be in a cell. Of not madness, so, uh, you get you like. a sticker. <laughs> just one, just one sticker. Yeah. Just one in the corner. I think, I think the leanness financially, the leanness that that COVID created was really beneficial to say, do, like, what do we actually need and what can we just cut out? Um, because we went through and I'm sure everybody did the same. It's just like highlighted, highlight, 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 delete, delete, unsubscribe, whatever. Um, Except and that was pretty. Yes, that's right. Except from uh, uh, big star there, disclaimer. Uh, no, but like you know, just going through and like, are we sure we need this? Like, can we just be, you know, more thoughtful about this? Do we, you know, it's helpful. It's very easy just to slap on stuff, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, um, buy that, that's 300 bucks. Okay, cool. Like it just helps, you know, move forward. 
Um, I think in a period of growth, you constantly do that. But, you know, every small business, I think we just have to be really particular about um, about that spend and just make sure to be just as smart as we were when we were smaller, but smart too, right? You don't want to pinch pennies to save uh, a dollar. So um, anyway, I think that's our, our work one. I'd say personally... Uh, Settled on a podcast, Mike Bruce. How many did you go through? <laughs> this is the third. Um, <clears throat> I would say, you know, personally, I actually really liked not traveling that much. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case out of COVID. Um, it was nice being more home. Like I'm sure you like are similar working from home versus the shop. You can be, you know, with your wife more. You can hang out. You don't uh, have to be gone as much. Um, but that's definitely changed. Uh, I would say, I think I personally learned how to better deal with larger situations at hand. So, you know, we had the business that was happening. We didn't, everybody didn't know what was going to happen to their lives, let alone their business over the next two months. Right. So that was a huge unknown. Then you also had everything election wise, which, you know, if you've got a family that's split between beliefs or whatever, it's almost like a religion. People are so oil and water about it. And so that's happening. Then there's a lot of like race relations and everything that's happening. Um, and coming from like a very diverse household, that that was just like a lot. And so uh, that created just uh, like, yeah, I feel like getting really good at departmentalizing things better or, or mentally dealing with working through more difficult situations better. Um, that I think makes you a lot tougher for future circumstances and that, yeah, I mean, this, this isn't that big of a deal. It's what people kind of go into. It's just t-shirts and then, okay, let's figure it out and move on. But yeah, in, in comparison to everything else that's going on, I mean, literally you just listed a hand pandemic race relations, the political atmosphere, like all those are some heavy, heavy things all happening at once. So compartmentalizing and, and looking at your day to day and being able to just take a deep breath and do what you can, I think is a very important mental uh, achievement that everyone needs to be able to go. Cause if you just, if you look at the overarching madness going on day to day and you, you just tune into the news and it's terrifying, right? So I think that's a, a really good valuable point for everybody. Just take a deep breath and focus on what you can do and, don't stress True. about everything because you know, it's gonna it's there to stress you out if you focus on it. There was also a good analogy, and I think this was in the traction book, where it's if you have like a glass of uh, you know anything, and the, the glass represents your day, and the beginning of the day we tend to fill it up immediately with like pebbles and little things. It could be email, it could be like little phone calls, text messages, this stuff, and it's kind of like a third of the way full. And then we then we go through meetings and stuff, and then it's like two thirds full. And then we try to do the big stuff that's really important, and those are like the big rocks that you try to put in. But there's no more room in the glass at the end of the day. And so, I think switching that is is the other thing that I'm realizing is just start it every day trying to do the biggest, most impactful stuff to fill up that glass, and then fill it up with the little things that. You know, we, we kind of get like so focused on checking off little tasks because it feels good, but it just doesn't move the needle a lot of times um, on some of the smaller stuff. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs>
week. Okay, jumping into Ask Anything. We've got a good question. Actually, two questions. I'm going to roll into one because they're very similar. Uh, you guys can always email us, podcast at printavo.com with your question, your business problem, your personal problem. We'll make it as anonymous as if you want. Anything to be able to get uh, the group thinking on. We could do the research on, whatever you'd like. But this comes of a question uh, around equipment and financing um, and also used versus new equipment. So the first question was, I'm going to buy a new piece of equipment. They're looking at the Rock A10. What is the best company to finance through? The second question they're getting into is a little bit more like, uh, what are the qualifications to get financed? And then if possible, should I look for more used presses or, or doing privately? I know you guys, obviously, Matt, you've got experience on the sales end. Farag, you've got experience buying new equipment, used equipment, all of that stuff. So I thought this was a good one. You should be able to, you shouldn't, you know, credit is a scary thing for a small business owner and you should know how to use it very well. There's a book that I read called I'll Teach You to Be Rich and it goes through the fundamentals of credit. And if it's hard to get credit, then it might mean that you're not ready to buy something big. That's that's a very good warning sign. That being said, that piece of equipment is an employee in your business and you can't really just return it or fire it. So you have to have a three-year plan of exactly how you're gonna pay for it and you can't bet on getting the sales. You should already have the sales and be able to pay for it. So if you're getting that rock and it's going to be a thousand dollars a month, um, and that's a there's 48 payments there or 64 payments or whatever that may be, you need to make sure that's part of your rent every single month if you choose to finance it. When I first started out in business, my business partners did not let us take any loans out when we bought equipment. We had to buy it in cash, and that was a very blue collar like we're going to buy in cash, we're going to save our money, and we're only going to buy what we can afford. Um, going back, you know, if you know how to use leverage and your assets, right, probably would have done it a little bit differently. But when I bought our entire shop from Matt, who sold it to us, which was brand new press, um, sprint 3000 split. Um, I, I think we got the, uh, exposure unit. Um, we paid for it in cash and, um, I don't have any debt there. So I would, uh, I would always tread lightly when you're taking out a loan. Um, there are those people like Geneva Capital and all those other ones out there that will sell. Um, you could go to your bank as well and see what interest rate should be. Um, if it's crazy, you probably shouldn't take the loan and you should contract out the work until you can afford it. Uh, that's my two cents. Go you for worked it, with your credit union, didn't you? Or Me? Yeah. When you, when you worked with that or no? Um, I, I was a local bank. You can ask your local bank. Yeah, you can oh, sell okay. your bank. <clears throat> that being said, used equipment is on the rise. There's nothing wrong. Our second auto we bought used and had the text from MNR come in, rebuild it, and it was beautiful. Probably saved thirty or forty thousand dollars by uh, buying it used. And um, if you if you know your text and you're buying something, you know, four or five years old, definitely a great idea if you're getting into new equipment um, and you haven't got your first auto yet. Um, How'd you find it? Uh, Facebook groups, right? Or Dave McLean's great and, uh, and those guys. Um, but you know, I sold our Lawson trooper to another shop and it was their dream, right? So 
like you don't have to start with a Rolls Royce. Um, you you can start small, and Matt Matt can talk about that. Yeah, no, I, I think you you said it pretty eloquently there. Um, I mean, there are places you can go for funding. You mentioned Geneva Capital; uh, they're awesome. Troy's a great guy. Um, there's also Beacon Funding. There's there's lots of different places you can go out to. Jeff Mansfield of Beacon Funding, great guy too. Um, so there's 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 options out there, and they'll work with you to to help make it the best that it can be for you. If you need to go that route, but I would definitely take Steven's advice on if, if you're having a hard time getting credit, that probably means you shouldn't use it yet. Um, so maybe outsource, utilize a shop like Campus or somebody else like that's local that can take on that larger work for you and you can build up your credit. You can build up that cash reserve. Uh, profit first mentality, so you can put money aside on its own. Once the money's there, then you can utilize that. Um, buying used, like Steven said too, it's definitely on the come up. A lot of shops, unfortunately, didn't make it through uh, COVID. So there's a lot of uh, equipment out there. I think, like he said too, if it's within like four or five years old um, and you've got trusted techs, either you can get a hold of MNR or Rock and talk to their techs, or if you've got somebody, I uh, got a buddy, Wally, who's phenomenal. He's helped Steven out a bunch too. Wally's amazing. Um, pe- people, people like that, they can help rebuild and, and, and get it up, up to snuff. That's, that's absolutely great. If you're looking older than that, I'd be very, very cautious unless you're already pretty well versed in that machine. Um, I wouldn't recommend someone to, looking to buy a 15-year-old or even a 10-year-old sportsman uh, from MNR unless they already had an MNR sportsman and like know the ins and outs of it and know how to like uh, make the press do what it needs to do and and do band-aids through the day because older presses are going to have some some finicky issues. Uh, dryers, uh, they're not going to be a fan that I'm saying this, but I'll tell anybody: feel free to buy a used dryer if it's 15, 20 years old. Realistically, the older they are, the less they're going to hold heat internally, so it might cost you more to run. But a dryer is basically an oven, just longer. It's a pizza oven, right? It's got to be able to get a, a flame. It's got to be able to hold heat. It's got to be able to push that heat around. That's really it. The older ones and just tend simple to properties cost more. Of it. Yeah, exactly. So on, honestly, a dryer, if you can find a good one, uh, at least one that's clean uh, on the marketplace and it's going to fit your needs, I'll tell somebody all day long, buy that used and save for a new auto if you can buy that new. Just because, think about it too. If you buy a new automatic, you're going to get the the warranty, right? You're going to have like, oh, if something goes wrong, something's going to help. Somebody else is responsible and liable for, for me having success with this in this first year. If you buy it used, you get it, it's delivered, somebody installs it, it kind of falls apart. Like, well, you bought it used, it's already run through the run through the motions too much, right? I'll get to it, I can get to it. And you're going to be kind of held up a little bit. So uh, I always recommend, if you can, um, look at the peripherals. Uh, flash units, those are fine to be used. Uh Dryers can be fine to be used, exposure units. Try to do those things used if you can, and then if possible, try to go new with the automatic. But again, if you're if you're looking only a few years old, you can definitely find some great things. If you go with somebody trusted like Dave McLean or one of those folks, those are also gonna be valuable too. But just be careful buying it from some, some small shop down in wherever, uh, unless you've got somebody that can go take a look at it and make sure it's worth the time and the money. Cause don't forget a used automatic, there's the price of the used automatic, then there's the price of install. There's the price of electric to make sure it's run. You have to make sure the right phasing for the electric. Uh, there's a lot of other costs that people forget about that go into that. It's like, oh, I bought a used press. It was only 12 grand. And then by the time they get it to their shop, installed and everything, like, oh, it ended up being $25,000. And at that point, would it have been more beneficial just to spend 30, 32 and get a smaller brand new one, right? So just make sure you're looking at everything and don't get stuck in just one one scope on that. Look at the big picture of install and running that and make sure it's going to be efficient and the ROI is also there. If you're going digital, whether it's direct to screen or DTG, buy new. Print heads, you know, 
But yep. if you're going okay. digital, buy new. Guys, really excited about this next episode. Alex Phelan from Printforia. He also rode the wave of Teespring before and all the things that happen behind the scenes. There is a lot. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Hey, Print Hustlers. Welcome back to another episode of Printavo Print Hustlers Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce from Printavo. Very, very special guest with us today, Alex Phelan out of Printforia. You probably haven't heard of Printforia, and you really can't Google much about Printforia. <laughs> I've tried. Um, but you're on the Washington, uh, Oregon border there doing some really cool stuff. Uh, I'm just really excited to talk. Your LinkedIn is stacked. A lot of history, <laughs> but your history is from the tech high growth garment side and we don't hear enough about that because i feel like it's sort of separated it's like if you're kind of west coast vc end or you're you're no more um general uh small medium-sized business that that it you know isn't really concerned with venture capital it's just i'm running an awesome business here so anyway there's a lot to unpack here thanks for joining us yeah yeah happy to be here Okay, I want to hop right in because uh, having gotten into the screen printing era around 2009, 2010, Teespring yep. was booming. Like yep. Teespring was not that not that they're not, and I'm sure people are listening. Oh, you know, we're really do- here's what we're doing, but you know that was the talk. There's also was uh, there was one out of Chicago that was Threadless. Yep. Uh, Threadless was also booming. Obviously, things have changed. What 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 went down? What was your role? I want to hear it all from start to finish. There's a sure. lot there. Yeah. So the overarching theme, um, I'd say for you know my whole career uh, in this space, and the theme that I think we're going to really touch on today is um, e-commerce driving decorated apparel, uh, and just e-commerce trends. You know how it's affecting the the overall landscape. So when I started, you know I. Um, I did not come from decorated apparel uh, or digital graphics or, you know, screen printing, embroidery, uh, anything related to the space. I came from the supply chain, logistics, uh, transportation industry, a little bit of e-commerce fulfillment, e-commerce operations. And one of my friends from St. Louis uh, started this company, Teespring, when he was in college. And they wanted to uh, memorialize a bar that got shut down by the cops. Um, and with a t-shirt, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to basically, you know, rally the troops and get, get the uh, place open again. Right. So they, um, went to go talk to screen printers and realized that there's a pretty high barrier to entry, um, just in acquiring decorated apparel, you know, not only, um, do you have to pay for it up front, but you also have to understand, you know, what the differences are in blank garments. You have to understand a little bit about digital graphics and logos and, you know, how color is going to translate to physical products. And uh, it can be a bit intimidating, you know, if you're uh, a college kid that doesn't have a lot of money. So they um, uh, decided to build kind of like a Kickstarter app that would collect pre-orders for this T-shirt design. And so that would at least solve the complexity of understanding how many they needed to order um, they were collecting credit card information so that they could pre-charge the credit cards so that they would have the money to pay for the garments up front. 
um, and they set a minimum of 100 shirts so that they could satisfy the batch minimum requirements with the screen printer. And so, um, you know, they ended up selling way more than the minimum. Uh, and then that process, you know, sort of repeated for a few different um, T-shirt campaigns. And so when I joined, uh, my friend was uh, my friend you Walker. You guys were the, I feel like one of the, not, you know, there's people doing fundraisers for a long time, but I mean, one to really blow it up though. Yep. Yep. So the whole, yeah, the, the whole premise was kind of uh, t-shirt fundraising or, you know, almost like Kickstarter for t-shirts. And Teespring was not the first uh, decorated apparel e-commerce platform. Obviously there was, you know, Custom Ink, Cafe Press, Threadless, um, but the model of those platforms was fundamentally different than kind of, you know, raising money around a campaign of, of t-shirts. And that sort mm -hmm. of later evolved into print on demand. I'll, I'll get there in a second. But basically, you know, we, um, when we started, we thought it was going to be a really good platform for charities to monetize their uh, social assets. And, you know, we had a, uh, we were and going wait, through. When did you, you join? So I joined in 2012. Okay. Um, the company started, it, it, I think the company started in late 2011, uh, you know, literally in a dorm room. And when I joined, uh, my friend Walker was telling me, he was back in St. Louis uh, on break from school. And he was telling me about um, this company that he started and he was really getting inundated with uh, t-shirt orders that he could not fulfill. And so at the time, you know, I'm, I'm a supply chain logistics guy. I'm thinking, you know, T-shirts going into a poly mailer with the shipping label on it, like, doesn't sound that complicated to me. Sure. Um, and the part and you that joined as a, as a, I'm just referencing your LinkedIn as a production yeah. manager too. I was, I was kind of like the ops person to figure out, you know, how are we going to make this work? I mean, we had, you know, um, a screen print shop, a local screen print shop in in New England. Um, we had a resource for uh, converting art you know, um, to something that could be usable by a screen printer, not color separations, but we did, uh, you know, vectorization and stuff like that. And um, it was literally kind of bootstrapped together with, you know, a few manual resources and, and email. And so at the time, you know, when, when I was talking to Walker about this, I thought, wow, it, you know, this doesn't sound that complicated to me. But the part that I missed was the, the, the decorating part, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. screen, screen printing. And um, I had learned a little bit about silk screening, you know, in, in high school arts and crafts. Uh, but that was about it. And so when I dug in and I started trying to understand what does this process look like um, in a just-in-time or even, even faster on-demand process, you know, is it even possible to do this uh, with kind of an Amazon Prime-like expectation of delivery? And that's when I realized, you know, okay, this is a this is a fairly complex problem. Um, the other thing I realized was that, you know, the traditional industry of decorating garments, whether that's putting ink on them with screen printing or making garments, you know, constructing garments and, and dyeing them and finishing them, like all of these processes typically take uh, a very long time. And the lead time expectation in the traditional decorated apparel world is very long. We were essentially trying to recreate as close to an Amazon Prime-like experience as possible once the order had been sent to the screen printer. So when I came on, you know, um, Teespring had just kind of evolved from being, uh, you know, in a dorm room to getting some seed funding. Um, we were in a small office in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. 
I joined right when we figured out kind of our product market fit. So um, initially, it was right at the time when Facebook, I don't know if you remember, if you were on Facebook, you know, pre-2012, um, there was this concept of like Facebook pages that had lots and lots and lots of likes. And there was no uh, control mechanisms to prevent people from page owners from sending information to all the people that like the page. This is pre-Facebook ads, like Facebook advertising was not even around. Facebook didn't even know how they were going to monetize um, all of their you know, viewers and everything. So it was really kind of the Wild West. We realized that a lot of these big Facebook pages had very engaged audiences. And a lot of them were around very specific things. I mean, some of them uh, as generic as, you know, I love my dog, but then you get a little bit more specific with I love my poodle or I love my Rottweiler or I love my, you know, teacup Yorkie or whatever. And all of a sudden you realize you have, you know, pages for all of these sort of engaged groups um, that have a lot of followers. And so, you know, we started uh, creating designs for these pages. We had a graphic designer from RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which is like the best design school in the country. We had an intern from RISD who was creating beautiful graphic designs for uh, every type of big engaged Facebook group you could think of. I mean, we had, you know, uh, you know, political and just messaging the, the admin. Yeah. So we'd set up the whole thing for them, like the design, everything, the web page, the store, everything. The, not even a store, just a page of a shirt with a piece of artwork on it and then oh, okay. uh, a, a buy it now button, right? So we were like, hey, here's a product that you can put in, that you can show your your uh, fans and, you know, the base price is $10 and you're going to sell it for $20 and we're going to give you $10 per unit. And most people thought it was like a scam or something like that. But the very first uh, couple pages that took the bait, you know, they sold a thousand shirts within two days, you know, and wow. made, you know, $10,000 basically doing nothing. So we, you know, we went from this very um, uh, sort of frustrating. So you, but you had the platform, like we'll call it platform, found the customer, but had to get, make the customer make money. You're two levels deep. Yeah, so it, it, exactly right. So we had to find... Um, we had to find people Which that's hard. That, I mean, we, they, we, you know, we tell shops now, especially if they're getting into stores, like you got to work with a customer that has a presence, exactly. uh, unless right. you want to market for them, which at this right. time there's like this, like kind of, uh, universe opening with, with Facebook, just allowing you to message millions of people at a time. <laughs> totally. And, and at the time, you know, this type of platform would have been much less successful without Facebook at that time. I mean, had mm -hmm. we... Um, had we continued down the path of nonprofits, it, it might have been successful at some point, but it was it was take, you know, took a lot more. Uh, it was a lot more resource intensive trying to to make those accounts successful. It was really the first kind of iteration of what um, you could call it, you know, print on demand or social commerce or, you know, leveraging social media to mm -hmm. sell products in a very different, you know, using targeting and, and ads and things like that, digital ads. Um, to convert sales in a very different way than traditional retail works. And so the first, you know, influencers or marketers that we found were just people that had big Facebook pages. And typically these people were really engaged with their fans. They were really excited about the thing that 
that they had a page about. And there, there was actually a company, I don't know if you've heard of them, but called Thread Me Up in Chicago for a while, doing kind of I similar, think, but I they, they were uh, not really customer facing, more of like a B2B tool to help. So they yep. would go with um, people who knew Facebook ads just really well. So any yep. modern event that was happening, positive, negative, whatever it was, would spin up a design, um, really promote it out, know how to market it, and then send all the orders to thread me up. Thread me up would work with the shop and then help fulfill it back out. But hmm. well, that was kind of the next phase, right? Was the whole internet marketer Facebook ads, you know, because. It, like Facebook pages pre ads, you just had these big groups. And then there was nothing preventing uh, all of their audience from seeing whatever you were posting. The next kind of iteration of that was when Facebook ads came out. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, now you can target all of these people based on all of this granular data that's highly accurate. It's the most accurate sales data. That's, because it's self reported, people are willingly sh sharing all this information about themselves. With Facebook ads, you could create an ad campaign and you could target, for example, let's say I wanted to create a shirt for um, nurses who really like ice fishing, right? Mm -hmm. Ice fishing, people who are really into it are really into it. Nurses are typically really, you know, any sort of trade profession, they're typically really proud of, of their trade and things. So if you can combine those two in a unique way, well, Facebook ads created this, you know, conduit for people to say, okay, I want to target, you know, women who are nurses who live in the Northern Midwest, who are also part of these ice fishing groups, you know, and then all of a sudden, maybe you're down to 615 of these people. But if you have a, a clever enough t-shirt design, that's high quality enough, and the perception is that it's a high quality product, then maybe you convert 10% of those people and you sell 61 shirts, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you've just made you know, maybe 600 to $700. So that was the real magic of uh, discovering this social commerce. The challenge that I think everybody faced quickly was, um, you know, so number one, you had a lot of uh, kind of me too copycat uh, platforms popping up. Sure. That all well, who, well, and who was doing the spend of the, like, was it Teespring actually creating the designs and putting it out too? Is it working with people? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, Teespring was not doing that. So Teespring was the platform and it was fueled by sellers. And the first, okay. the, fir the first sellers were uh, Facebook page owners primarily. Now, sure. you, you know, it, there, there, there was, so you'd certainly get a family reunion or some small little order there, but primarily Facebook uh, page owners. The second big wave of sellers were um, internet marketers. Internet marketers that were creating ad campaigns on Facebook um, to it. try to sell products to certain niches. And you see a lot of this in like, um, you see a lot of this in like drop shipping or, you know, uh, selling digital ads, cost per action programs, that kind of stuff. That's the community that kind of discovered this. And they said, hey, this is a physical product that everybody loves. It's universal. It's the universal form of expression. And it's just a blank canvas for, you know, promoting some idea or expressing yourself somehow. Got and it. So, so you guys found those people and then just really started to scale. Looks like raised some 50, 60 million dollars. Yep. Yeah. And just and really they, pushing forward. They found us. It was really the it was so viral, you know, because as soon as you have some like Teespring in, in uh, 
I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2015, created like uh, 25 millionaires. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Like we, there was like the top, the top 25 sellers on the platform netted over a million dollars. I mean, there was, there was some crazy, you'd hear about a kid, you know, in, in Africa who is using the one hour of internet that they have per day to, to, to sell t-shirts to people um, in the United States making six figures. I mean, it's incredible. That, that, is, that was the most uh, powerful, incredible, you know, thing that we experienced with, um, uh, with this whole, you know, print on demand space. The power of that has sort of driven my career and the rest of the market. Uh, that, that's the underlying, you know, powerful uh, force behind what we're doing. But I think in right around 2015, um, you know, we had a couple uh, roadblocks that that really, you know, kind of altered the was path. That the copycats of, was one of them. So I'd say one of one of them was um, copycat. And how uh, did you deal with the copycats too for for hopping into the others? Yeah, yeah, um, it's tough. You know, I mean, we had we had some uh, copycat platforms that were, you know you know, I, I mean, using similar IP and things like that. But there was primarily the big problem was when um, a lot of you had all these Me Too sites and Me Too uh, platforms that had various levels of quality. And so all of a sudden, you know, Facebook was very sensitive about um, how many things are being sold in your newsfeed, like how, how spammy does your newsfeed feel, like in terms of the ratio of organic content what, to and ads. And they started to cut into it. And so exactly. it was easy to promote. And, then, it. and how happy are these people about these products, you know, because all of a sudden if you're sending, you know, some heat transfer thing that washes off after one wash or, you know, they ordered this shirt and they received this shirt or, you know, all this, all, uh, Facebook tracks all that stuff and they understand are people actually happy about this activity? And so um, they there was a, a big uh, crackdown on T-shirt ads and just, you know, how many T-shirts could be advertised on the platform, what types of uh, 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 data variables you could use to target people on those ads. You know, there was a while where um, people were targeting people's names and years they were born. <laughs> You know, and and all of a sudden somebody said, wow, this feels a little bit like Big Brother. You know, Facebook <laughs> is trying to sell me a T-shirt that says, hey, your name is Alex and you were born in 1985. And it's like, wait a minute, what? That, hey, that's a little bit, a little bit too much. Um, and, you know, so that was kind of, uh, I'd say the big, the big sort of wrench number one was Facebook, just Facebook in general. Sure. Uh, changing as it their evolved, algorithms it wasn't that. as much of a gold rush. I mean, exactly. every kind of new platform, you know, exactly. I mean, people getting into to TikTok really pretty early and have been able to monetize a lot better. And eventually it it, it saturates out and that the payouts aren't what, what they used to be. Right. And that happened. I mean, even with the, the I remember the organic posts and just sharing everything like nothing yep. reached anymore. And, yep. you know, yeah, now you people to... are moving into like LinkedIn, for example, because they're trying to get people to, to do more. Yeah. But so I think, you know, at the time, uh, Teespring was in a really unique position because we had uh, crazy valuation, Silicon Valley, VC money coming in. Very Wait, so well when did you move from East Coast to West Coast? So, oh, my gosh. It when wasn't the first a, when the series it A was or... it wasn't a straight line. Um, so we were in. Our headquarters was in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, 
and we were outsourcing everything at the time. Um, I, you know, initially we were growing so fast that there was not enough, you know, first of all, we were doing everything with screen printing, everything was outsourced. And the way that we were interfacing with screen printers, like I would call a screen printer and I would say, Hey, I can give you 200 jobs a day. Uh, on average, they're going to be about 50 pieces. So you're going to have, you're going to get some jobs that are, you know, 200 plus pieces, not that many. Uh, and you're going to get some jobs that are like under 50 pieces, not that many, hopefully. Right. And so already most screen printers, want to hang up the phone because <laughs> they're like, you know, hey, you, you know, I have a 200 piece minimum or I have 140 piece minimum. As soon as you start to get under 100 pieces, especially back then, 2012, 2013, a lot of screen printers didn't want that type of work. Um, so to have to to have to, uh, you know, do hundreds of jobs or 50 plus jobs that are all in that short run category, mm -hmm. that's already tough. But then we had the additional requirement of converting those batch orders into individual e-commerce orders. And so think about, you know, even the most successful campaign, which would be a design going on a collection of garments. You had to ship it all out to 50 people, Bingo. 200 people, well, which today or, maybe people are more, a little bit more accustomed to, but right. yeah, I mean, you're talking 2000, yep. what did you say, 12, uh, uh, 15 or so, 14. Our, you're, it's pretty much all one-offs. So even a, even a 2000 piece order, you're fulfilling over 1900 individual orders. And we had some pretty slick, you know, little ways for, um, uh, to do this manually without APIs and lots of software and technology. Um, we had a, but, but it required a lot of training. It required a very lengthy onboarding process. Um, there was lots of manual open loop communication that had to happen. And meanwhile, the company is growing 40% month over month. So literally, I think the first month, uh, like we went from doing, you know, a few thousand shirts a month to uh, a million, a million units a month in a year, you know, I mean, it was, wow. it was crazy. And then having, having to, it, because it wasn't traditional decorated apparel, you know, if you had, if you're doing a million units a month in traditional decorated apparel, but you're doing 10 hundred thousand piece runs, well, there's tons of infrastructure that exists for doing that type of work. There's lots sure. of shops that will take hundred thousand piece runs and, and, you know, do lots of them and put them in boxes on pallets to go to stores. But we needed lots of capacity in um, individual fulfillment as well as batch, uh, you know, big batch jobs and individual fulfillment. So um, we kind of broke the... <laughs> We broke the screen printing uh, contract layer very quickly. Sure. We also broke we also broke the garment distribution layer very quickly because rather than bringing in lots of garments in a long retail cycle, we were needing to to get garments very quickly close to the customer, close to the decorator, um, and have them ready kind of just in time to produce with the order. Do you remember? So, do you remember a peak month as far as? <laughs> Maybe garments oh, yeah. coming in or, or dollars I, or something. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I, and uh, yeah, if, if anybody from Teespring is listening, they'll have to, maybe they can send me a correction on this. But I think <laughs> it was, I think it was uh, either March or April of 2015, because there was this crazy, we just a straight line growth. Um, and then the first, the first, uh, 
sort of impediment to that was Facebook changing their algorithms. So there was okay. this big algorithm change that caused, you know, some platforms to lose all their volume, uh, you know, caused Teespring to lose quite a bit of revenue overnight. And but do you, it was, do you remember the number of shirts or, or orders then? I think it was, I think it was like, yeah, it, it was like over a million shirts a month or something like that. It was, it was a lot. Yeah, it was so crazy, it's just, crazy. It's just insane. I mean, how, like, how did you solve working with distribution? Did you have go, did you have to like go up to the mills to say, yeah. like, we just have to we, skip you guys and you we, know, so the problem, um, on one hand, so we, when you're that big, you're big enough to get the attention of all the mills and all the distributors. But the problem is, you need them to re-engineer every single thing about how they do things, right? Because we, for example, we learned the first year, um, I, or I learned, I should say, I was the, the ops guy. Um, I learned that the way that hoodies are made for printware, so Gildan, Hanes, Fruit of the Loom, you know, all of them, right? Every, all the major printware mills, they all make their fleece one time per year. And, uh, you know, I think that year it was like April or something like that when they made all the all the fleece and nobody really knew about Teespring was growing, but they weren't this big whale at the time like they were in peak season of that year, not even six months later. And so we were growing 40 percent month over month that year. Our, our customer base is growing exponentially. And by the time we got to October, uh, really, even by the time we got to August, September, we had started depleting certain colors of hoodies in the country so like in the you know 50 50 uh fleece gildan 18500 you know whatever jerseys 996 hanes p170 that that basic fleece hoodie pullover we had depleted the national supply in like yellow purple um various different colors you know like the first colors were the ones that they don't make as big of batches for but then by the time we got to like November, December, we had started depleting entire national stocks, uh, distributor stocks of black hoodies and white hoodies and all kinds of stuff. So and you realize that, you know, when you're in the middle of peak season craziness, um, it's hard for, you know, a platform like Teespring or this massive print on demand platform to just turn off. Hey, we're not selling black hoodies right now. you know, And everybody's like, well, wait, why? Sure. <laughs> and it's because. It's because the mills didn't produce enough in their one shot. And then the entire process of making garments takes like eight months, you know, so it's so not calibrated how do, how to the on-demand nature of what we're doing. What are you just trying to aggressively call or source? So the first you know, thing we possible had to do, what? <laughs> the first thing we had to do was we had to empower um, the decorators to, to order. So that was the first big um, battle that I fought with uh, the distributors was getting sub accounts created for the for the printers to be for them to be able to order on our behalf and say, you know, hey, here's my 200 jobs for the day or my 50 jobs or whatever. And I'm going to um, use a sub account at, at the distributor to source all these things. And we had some at one point, um, our largest screen print partner uh which was this crazy unicorn company that was doing like you know they were doing lots of short run uh some of these presses were doing like five setups an hour like crazy unheard of stuff um they had a ten thousand square foot space just for receiving the blanks on demand and we were basically just running you know like um 
uh, this particular decorator was in the DFW area and we were running just trucks, full trucks from, you know, the, the distributors warehouse in Dallas to the decorator, just, just constantly, constantly replenishing. And, um, and then we worked with the distributors and the mills to, uh, forecast things. And, you know, we, I mean, we started working peak season was really never, um, it was an ongoing project. I mean, we started work, we would start planning supply chains for peak season, uh, as early as January. And so that's all because you just never know with, with e-commerce and on demand, you never know what you're going to get. You know, if you have, uh, uh, some, you know, influencer or celebrity or something that, you know, uh, needs a bunch of yellow hoodies and they sell 30, 40,000, you know, more than you thought, all of a sudden you're depleting, uh, you know, stocks. And so, but the challenge primarily at the time was, uh, you know, Facebook not having, um, having a, uh, decorator supply chain that's not used to doing on demand at all, having a, uh, garment, uh, printware supply chain that's not used to it at all. And then also realizing, so, um, you know, naturally when we realized that Facebook was, was, uh, was going to be a big risk, where do you go? Right? Well, mm -hmm. we're, we're a VC funded company. We've got lots of connections. Let's go to traditional decorated apparel. Right. And, and let's, let's go talk to, you know, uh, uh, celebrities and, uh, brands and, uh, all of these other incredible sources of decorated apparel revenue. Right. And because, um, we were a sort of, you know, the bell of the ball of a Silicon Valley custom apparel companies at the time, we were able to uh, get connected to very large decorated apparel accounts and have very large decorated apparel opportunities come to us naturally. I was forced to start looking at direct to garment, even though everybody was telling me, hey, oh, the quality's terrible. I mean, it was basically like a four letter word, you know, for every, it was like, even even with our board and exec team and everything, it was like, don't say DTG, don't even mention it. Like DTG is not a solution. All of a sudden, uh, this this light bulb went off for me, being kind of a supply chain logistics warehouse process guy, right? And having been spent the last two years in every type of screen printing operation that you could imagine, you know, when I saw that and I saw, hey, they're printing just one of something and look at this process for me. It was the biggest aha moment because I, I, I wasn't married to the idea of screen printing and I didn't understand all of the shortcomings of DTG. We were just, we were so desperate for a solution. We needed something like, like we were going to drown, you know? And sure. so when I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we're a software company. We can make this work. This is a printer. We can interface with it. It can, we can feed it digital information. Like this is the future. I, uh, I, I then learned that, okay, you know, so if we're going to get into DTG. Well, who are the vendors, right? Who, <laughs> okay, well, there's SSI. There's another vendor, the Dream Junction. So there was two. Um, uh, the Dream Junction was in Southern California, SSI was in um, uh, Iowa, but that was it. I mean, and, and we filled their capacity on like day one. I'm curious, did you, when you onboarded them and you've got a mix of screen and digital, how did that work, especially when you talk about the quality aspect? Like, did it, yeah. like, for example, if I did a campaign and then I did a campaign, but it came out digital, especially then, 
when you said it was a bit earlier yep. uh, with the Avalanche or, and whatever Dream Junction was using. Yep. You know, how was that managed or did, did it not question. matter? You just need to, yeah, it's a, you just it's a need the orders question. out. Um, because, so prior to direct to garment, um, if, and mind you, we're still in the campaign model. So everything is a campaign, everything, the, the experience of using Teespring is creating a design, setting a minimum, and the lowest minimum that you could set, I believe was 12 units. That was the, that was the shortest run screen print job that we would farm out. Um, mm -hmm. And as the, as the platform grew, we kept seeing more and more volume in those, those lower buckets. And it was because we were getting exponentially more sellers but the quality of those sellers was decreasing. So rather than getting these massive page owners and influencers sure. and stuff, we're getting lots of people on average who are for selling less. For my picnic or for exactly. you know, barbecue, whatever, whatever. Exactly. And so then we're seeing all of this traction in the 1 to 10, the 1 to 12, you know? And so it's like, wow, well, if we could just unlock 1 to 12, then uh, we, could, we could solve this problem. It, it was very frustrating for a seller to see 11 units and in their mind, maybe that's $110, 100 to $200 in profit. And then- And it'd be gone. And it's gone, right? Now, oh, we didn't get the 12th sale, so now we got to pull the rug out from so under that you. Was so that was where that was where you could work with them. So it was, it's exactly. interesting because it kind of paired together with the supply chain just not working for the growth, but also the types of orders that were coming in were perfectly fit. I mean, it's, exactly. it's almost like replaying in a way COVID <laughs> with, with supply chain breaking, but also um, with so much e-commerce that's, that's blown up too. So the, the other thing we learned too, Bruce, was that um, there's a difference between uh, if somebody is just ordering one of something and they're getting it in a white poly mailer that they ordered from Facebook for like $14. There's a different expectation in quality. I'm not not trying to justify this, but there's a different expectation in quality uh, from that user than somebody going into the Nike store and seeing this incredible display with all these, you know, yeah. 30, $30 gag, to $50 shirts. A gag, you know, one shirt versus right. Right. long term. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, it was it was a the sellers loved it because now they could capture all the revenue. Um, the buyers didn't seem to care too much about the quality at the time, especially because we could ship it so quickly. Um, so somebody could go from designing something on the internet to getting it a few days later. That was totally revolutionary um, of just one of something, right? And so, um, so that's kind of how we dipped our toes in it. Uh, we quickly, you know, I quickly moved to um, opening a production facility. That was really... Right when we discovered DTG, we realized there wasn't enough capacity. We had this crazy growth trajectory. So we pivoted from, uh, we still had kept an outsourced network. I believe Teespring still has an outsourced network. Um, but I left uh, Rhode Island to look at opening a production facility. And that's mm -hmm. what brought me to kind of the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, we brought on um, a, a fulfillment executive from Amazon, Zappos. And he turned us on to this Hebron, Kentucky, Northern Kentucky uh, area, which was really, really good for e-commerce fulfillment. So for, for e-commerce fulfillment, you know, you're looking at, um, I want a good location for shipping. I want a good location where I can ship to lots of population centers uh, very efficiently, very low cost. 
and um, you want a, a business friendly landscape, um, you know, place uh, where, where it's easy to recruit. Um, and so Amazon kind of mastered this whole philosophy of where to put uh, regional fulfillment centers, you know, to make things as efficient as possible. So we wanted to take that approach. Um, let's open production facilities in this kind of regional uh, so Amazon-like. You started getting into internalizing it, exactly. but still having this kind of contract partner network for the larger runs, opening yep. up all these different facilities. I'm, you know, I'm doing just some some Googling around. It's hard to see, and maybe you can't say, but what revenue was roughly around then. But I see anywhere numbers of 50, 60, 70 yeah, million I mean, or so. At one point, the, um, I can't remember what it was at the time. There's public information about what it was kind of at its peak. Um, what, it, what happened though was from 2015 to 2017, um, the Facebook situation only got more, you know, only got uh, worse and worse in terms of just how strict they were, uh, they were getting about custom products and, and POD platforms. Um, so, you know, we pivoted into more, um, retail kind of influencer stuff. Um, like, you know, I remember getting, uh, an NFL deal, getting NBA, getting Elton John, getting Beyonce, getting, you know, and getting so excited. Uh, we had, we had the wind in our sail from, from Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I thought we were going to go take over the world. I mean, I literally thought we're in the space age over here, you know, screen printing's over here in the stone age, mm -hmm. and we're going to go take over everything. Well, sure enough, uh, the, that market is so different. The traditional decorated, and this is the big lesson that I learned was the traditional decorated apparel market, um, the traditional retail promo screen printing embroidery, um, is the output expectations and the, the, uh, kind of tools that you need in your toolkit to properly service that market is so different than what we had in digital at the time. So we had these machines, you know, that could um, produce fairly accurate color, depending on the color, uh, it would be more accurate than other colors. But not right? to a, uh, you know, large retail Nike. Or, exactly. You know. So you couldn't take, you know, the, the reality of the output at the time um, was, you know, a shirt that smells like vinegar in a poly mailer, in a in an unbranded poly mailer with no branding in the in the neck, um, you know that scratches off and washes off. You know, it, it washes off after a couple washes. I mean, that that is the reality of the situation. There's no, there was no, there has never been a direct to garment technology, uh, especially at that time that was anywhere close to the color accuracy capability or the print durability capability, um, or just having dynamic hand feels and things like that, that you could mm -hmm. achieve with screen, screen print. You keep saying, you, you say at the time, so I'm assuming uh, Printforia's <laughs> got some, yeah. some interesting yeah, things yeah, that they've they're... been working on internally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course there's a sales pitch attached to that, so. <laughs> um, um, Teespring, you know, was this all, you know, what happened? Uh, so 
I, with all so of for, that now, because granted, I from what I see is that there's definitely been a huge rise of the company as well, which I'm totally, assuming yeah. left and like they've really tapped into to influencers again, and YouTube has been huge, yes. and yes. You know, influencers move big units from from the things that I've seen at, at companies like so, Fanjoy and some of these others. Totally, yeah. So I I, I have to say, uh, Teespring is doing phenomenal right now. Um, the new CEO Chris Lamontagne helped the company really pivot. Uh, it's, it's, it's a totally different company now. So I, I definitely want to preface that um, Teespring is doing great. Uh, you know, we know, still know a lot of people there. Um, they're doing very exciting things. I'm talking specifically about uh, 2015 to 2017. And yeah. some of some of the some of the challenges that we experienced that um, that sort of opened my eyes to, to what was missing. And so at the time, you know, we were trying to um, and produce. There's, there, by the way, the reason I ask, too, is because there are so many rumors of things that I've heard. And these all get passed down and passed down and passed down of like, you know, it was it was too fast or it was in-house, didn't know what happened. It was too expensive, whatever. It, a lot of things slowed down. So that's why I'm curious to know. Yeah. You know, from somebody who was in there. You know, essentially, it's a microcosm of the current problem, which is trying to convert traditional decorated apparel over to this on-demand, lean, digital to physical process in an e-commerce fulfillment model. So that that that's really... Uh, and at the time, we were trying to take, you know, um, very, very high, like premium, high-end quality expectation uh, work and reproduce that on printers that had, you know, very limited color gamut, um, were not able to uh, print on most, you know, a lot of different substrata, like they can't print on 100% polyester, even, uh, you know, even... Um, uh, some polyester could produce, you know, very inconsistent results and things mm -hmm. like that. So that was the real challenge was just kind of, you know, I was, I was seeing a huge gap in terms of what the manufacturing technology was capable of, of like the ceiling of that manufacturing technology and what the requirements were from these big retail decorated apparel partnerships. And the other big problem was that the, uh, printer companies at the time, and to some extent, still to this day, we're not being honest about um, how how much they were missing. You know, so like if you if you look at, um, you know, Cornite, for example, Cornite will tell you, you have everything you need for your decorated apparel business in this box. It's a box with two pallets and a spray system and some some white ink and some cmyk ink or maybe you have a true red maybe you have a hexa configuration if you have an atlas or an hd6 or something like that but basically with these print heads and this spray system and fixation you're good to go you, you can go you can go do you know most decorated apparel applications mm -hmm. and when you when you get into it you realize well actually that's not really the case um this isn't really good enough for uh you know bravado or umg or you know nike or any of the big sports brands um and a lot of the answers that i would get at the time was stuff like you know uh oh no 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 you just uh you your customers don't actually need that quality no you don't you don't actually need to be that high quality or you know or like we'd have to Ooh, we'd have these to, are the manufacturers that say this yeah like a lot of the dtg That's printer goofy. manufacturers so 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 uh corny's pretty 
pretty uh, notorious for saying stuff like that. And, you know, you're looking at some of these, um, take Nike, for example, right? Nike's on the extreme side of, uh, you know, quality. So for Nike, you know, for the basic level of quality for, for a Nike shirt, uh, you know, let's call it a whatever, Kentucky basketball, one color white ink shirt on a blue, you know, on a royal blue blank, right? They want you to withstand, you know, 25 washes at 60 Celsius with not a single crack in the print, right? So literally like the shirt's about to melt before the print, right? And then <laughs> you compare that to, um, uh, you know, any sort of direct-to-garment print, especially corneet print, um, you can scratch it off, you know, so you can't even put it through one. I mean, one cycle at 60 Celsius is going to erode half the print, you know, so it's it, it's not even they weren't even in the same universe, you know. Now, obviously, Nike's an extreme example, right? Um, but 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 it holds the market, It you know, because, we, you know, when when you when somebody orders b baseball tees, they, they want the quality that they go get at the store. Right. Not something. Uh, granted, of course, I'd like to make a huge star here because I don't get any funky emails from this. Is we're talking about 2015, 2017. Right. So, um, a lot's and, changed. And Alex, by the way, is running a large uh, digital uh, DTG company. So, uh, but, but I mean, I think you bring up a good point, and especially converts to today though too, which is. I, I want to get into with you, especially the balance of, yeah. of where you think things play. But um, so so was it like a combination then of these aspects that really did it did it slow the growth or did it did it say to the company, hey, we just have to change. You know, we're running in this circle, but now we got to kind of go yeah. elsewhere or what? Um, you know what I felt like? I felt like we had built the coolest Formula One race car that was about to go win, you know, uh, whatever, whatever Grand Prix. And we forgot the engine. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I felt. It's like, hey, we got everything ready. We're ready for the race. We're ready for the party. And then we realized that, you know, it didn't have the, you know, maybe, maybe not no engine, but it didn't have the right type of engine to even participate in the race. Right. Mm. And, um, and so that, that feeling sort of, um, pushed me to the manufacturing technology side. I started looking at the big, big difference between what screen printing is really good at and what direct-to-garment is really good at is color accuracy, print durability, large blocks of spot colors. So, you know, if you want to see the show, all the shortcomings of DTG, go take a, you know, 12 inch by 12 inch box of white, just L value 100, and then print it through the printer and see what happens. You'll see all the all the little missing nozzles and everything, right? Because you're you're raining little drops on top of peaks and valleys of a of a of a shirt that's you know it's it's a it's an inkjet printhead that's designed for paper, and you're printing on this thing that's you know some chemical soup of fibers and peaks and valleys. And so um, so you're always so that's kind of the main difference is like the holy grail for direct to garment has always been at least for me. Um, trying to match screen printing's color gamut, the print durability, and the vibrancy and consistency of solid bl blocks of color. 
when I started seeing what people were doing with the wet to dry process and then kind of MacGyvering in these other steps, like I would see somebody put on the DTG, uh, you know, hobby forum post like a white ink print and I'd say, whoa, that looks like a screen print. Wow. How did you do that? And they'd say, you know, well, you know, I pre-treated, then I dried, then I heat pressed, then I printed white, then I dried it, then I heat pressed again, then I printed another layer of white, then I dried it, then I heat pressed, <laughs> I'm thinking, wait a minute. So 30 minutes later and you know, $8 worth of ink later, you've got a shirt. However, um, what was interesting was that they were using process and additional steps to get higher quality. Well, what is that similar to? Similar to screen printing. That's how screen printers think. That's how screen printing works is, uh, you know, in any artwork garment scenario, you're looking at, it, this is one of the things that's uh, so impressive to me about screen printers, particularly people that understand pre-press is like somebody that is really good at pre-press can look at any artwork garment scenario and they can say like, oh yeah, we're gonna do, we're gonna do a 110 mesh on this and this is gonna be a 230 mesh over here. And we're, you know, they yeah, wanted this right. Pantone, but I know it's this true red and, you know, just all this like tribal knowledge that's like, like so accessible at any given time. And they understand how to build layers in the right way on a carousel. And that's really critical, you know, a screen printer that does a lot of retail work, especially a lot of very technical premium high fashion work, they're going to understand the micro differences between different types of heat presses or hot rollers or hot irons that give you different hand feels, you know, uh, all the way down to how does it feel? You know, how does the print need to feel on this specific shirt? Um, just a totally different level of, of quality control and variables that you have to keep in mind. And so um, th that's what I really liked about what was what some of these little mom and pop shops and what a lot of people thought would be crazy, I thought was really cool because um, it was kind of R&D for, well, if we could have, uh, if we could just think outside the box and have a perfect direct-to-garment process, what would that process look like? With, with, um, with what you were pulling together there and then what, what you were doing then at now Printforia, which we got to kind of get into what is Printforia. Yeah. But I'm very curious as to to the comparisons with, with 2020, with the pandemic and everything, and with the explosion of e-commerce with garments and, and, and your knowledge yeah. of all that and what's happened, especially, you know, equipment manufacturers who, who manufacture digital want to say digital is going to, digital is going to be the majority of the market. Um, obviously screen printers, you know, I, I want to say we, because we're over here saying this is interesting. I mean, I do a little bit of it. I'm not like super thrilled. It, it has its, it has its place, but if it takes over cool. Um, and so, but it's interesting thinking about the market. I mean, we just, uh, right. did a really great, uh, podcast with, uh, Rafael Perez, who, who's like big on the, uh, international retail side. Um, and, uh, uh, and again, it, it is quality is driven up here at, at, at a level that they need. And so they keep going to screen. Now, do they love digital for aspects for sure? Because you know, it could be sampling thing. They do a lot of really cool, small run personalization stuff. Um, and it more so is a play nice together aspect. But I think 
just when I'm listening to your story of going back to the the supply chain breaking is stuff yeah. that we're still experiencing here today. Well, it's it's things that we experienced in our little niche on demand world. Yeah, it was like a uh, like seven or eight years ago that right. everybody's experiencing on a global stage right now. Right. <laughs> so um, just to kind of, you know, to blow through the OvalJet story, it's a big story and there's a whole separate podcast that we could do just on that. Um, but from 2015, from 2017 to 2020, uh, I was involved in uh, product development on OvalJet, um, the world's fastest direct-to-garment platform. And we developed what's inter what's very interesting about the approach that we took was um, it was we were users of the technology. Okay, we were not machine builders or you know people starting a machine company to sell machines. We wanted a machine that we could use that sure. was a better mousetrap for getting decorated apparel business into digital on-demand. And so that's important caveat, number one. Number two, we went into a very uh, non-traditional development cycle for this type of product. We really used kind of software development methodology, agile uh, methodology to develop this product in a very iterative process over the course of three years. And we did it with um, a couple partners on the decorated apparel side that were putting live orders through these machines. So, you know, through the course of the three years, rather than designing the machine in a lab and then kind of forcing it on the market, we designed it in production with the market and we put over 4 million prints through these systems, including mm. prints from some very large uh, companies that really don't do any DTG. So that was, a, that was this kind of, uh, R&D project that we did on how do we close the gap between um, screen printing and, and DTG. And um, so fast forward to uh, end of 2019, um, OvalJet is released to the market. You know, I, I had been in this sort of rabbit hole echo chamber of the e-commerce world and e-commerce fulfillment world and trying to make the most sophisticated direct-to-garment machine that we had ever seen. Um, and when we deployed this technology to the market, I think I realized that I was in a bit of an echo chamber and maybe had been pulled down a seven year rabbit hole because when I came back to the market, the majority of the market was still the same. Now this is pre COVID. This is right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't believe it how, you know, uh, the number of companies that was doing like API integrated you know, digital to physical printing, whether that's through direct to garment or through dye sublimation or heat transfer or whatever, was really had not evolved. I mean, things had not uh, evolved much in kind of the seven years that, that, that I had been down this journey. So uh, fast forward to 2020, right? I met um, at the end of 2019, we had released this product. Uh, I was seeing more kind of... Um, more more willingness from the retail space to look at direct to garment as a as a viable option you know everybody saw that e-commerce was was getting you know bigger and bigger uh not anywhere to the extent that covid took it right but um but but so the landscape was great for starting a company that was going to be you know using this technology to serve um retail companies and brands and so that's when i met uh david mccaleb and David McClure from Printforia. So 
I had been in kind of this like crazy R&D project with direct-to-garment, um, kind of almost like exploring the future of what's possible in direct-to-garment. These guys were doing the same thing on the Amazon side with e-commerce fulfillment. So they came from, uh, they were running the Amazon Fresh Prime Now, Prime Pantry business uh, for, for on the ops side for Amazon. Um, uh, David McCaleb was on the engineering side and David McClure was on the ops side. And together, you know, they were launching, I think they launched uh, a, a huge chunk of the Amazon Fresh sites globally. And that's where a lot of the uh, automation technologies were being leveraged, you know, the computer vision systems, Kiva, Robot, all, all this stuff that, you know, I mean, I, I know a little bit about e-commerce fulfillment, but like that stuff to me was- Yeah, like, it's another scale. You know, next level, right? right? right. And so they kind of came from the future of e-commerce fulfillment. I kind of came from the future of DTG. They wanted to start a company that um, really was around this concept of value-added fulfillment, which is sort of a bigger umbrella concept um, of which print-on-demand is part of. So print-on-demand is, you know, taking blank things or you know blank uh, products and, and decorating them with ink. Well, value-added fulfillment is just doing things in the process of something being uh, an order being fulfilled. So. Mm -hmm. They launched in, they, they wanted to start a uh, kind of contract printing company on the surface, but really what Printforia is doing is um, building the global execution layer for what we call supply chain zero. It's a zero waste supply chain that focuses on leveraging value added fulfillment technologies to do as many things on demand uh, in the fulfillment process. So how much of the manufacturing process can we do on demand? So it's a big idea. Got it's, it. a, it's a big, big, big I was just concept. about to say, what the <laughs> yeah. does that mean? But, um, no, but that makes sense as far as, again, it's very just in time, right? Is, is right. in the supply chain books. Um, yeah. how does that, so, you know, contract, it's clear there's like products that you guys are working on. Or, or like some really cool stuff there, but like what what is the um, how does this like what happened then you you know we've got forty five billion dollar market you said two percent or so DTG it seems like that two yep. to three x or so during COVID where where does this go and then what did you guys see from the supply chain happening over the last twelve months yeah um, that that really changed. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously COVID changed everything. Um, the big, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen when COVID hit. I mean, there was a, the first month, people were either completely shut down or trying to convert to make PPE. And we were part of that. We were making PPE. We, we, our future was incredibly uncertain. And then um, it was around June uh, early summer of 2020, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it went from being this like, you know, silence to everything around e-commerce and everything related to e-commerce uh, exploded. And it was almost like, you know, that it was very odd for um, uh, for our industry. You know, our industry would uh, the print on demand direct to garment industry typically follows similar peaks and valleys that the screen printing industry does. So for example, June is typically a very slow month. The summertime's typically slower, you'll get a back to school push, and then you know that'll kind of ramp up into peak season, but the summer is typically slow. So uh, you know, 
when you have a global pandemic and everything shuts down, you're kind of thinking, oh my gosh, are we gonna shut down for the summer? What's gonna happen? It's already slow in the summer. Now we've got a global pandemic. What happened was the demand just bounced back and all the demand that was um, going to be, going to go into these long run big batch, uh, batches of custom products overseas came back into the United States in the form of on-demand or just-in-time decorated apparel orders that were being produced that were being sold on e-commerce platforms Got so it. all of a sudden so there was this crazy and you can look at the data on this you know um the countries that were affected the the, the hardest economically by covid were primarily in central america and southeast asia uh regions of the world that are mass producing products for Europe and the United States, um, and you know the way that uh, the way that these retailers typically operate with these factories is having them make lots, you know, big batches of products that they may or may not pick up, you know, several months later. And COVID hit right at the weakest point in the retail cycle, or the riskiest point in the retail cycle, where all these factories had all these goods ready to pick up. So for all the big brands and big retail brands. Um, if I'm if I'm the, you know one of their suppliers in some country, I might have millions of dollars of product ready to pick up. Company didn't pick up, and that that happened across the board and uh, with coronavirus. So all these big big retail orders that were ready for uh, to be you know picked yeah, up says, and we're handed good. off in chain of custody. Yeah, we're good. And yeah, so that was which replaced. happened to so many shops too. Is hey, exactly exactly. These garments. Sorry, and so, we can't. Exactly. So what did the retailers do? They put it all online. Right. And so when you put it online, you know, how do you how do you support that? Right. So already that alone increased the demand for, uh, you know, domestic decoration activity and also domestic um, distribution activity. So, you know, rather than storing containers of this product overseas and then taking eight months you know, to kind of arbitrage it around the globe, finally ending in, in you know, a bunch of stores uh, in the United States before Christmas. Well, now companies can just uh, basically use any any of their e-commerce platforms as kind of a testing ground. So I don't have to go and pre-produce a quarter million of these things if I can we put them it, online. We, we kind of, it's almost like a pre-order. Exactly. Gauge demand. Keep exactly. inventory, which I've, you know, actually going to do a lot of working with shops and doing shop tours and everything. Um, I see quite a bit of, of brands that they will keep blanks on hand at the shops. Yep. Um, and yep. it's not because they're going to run it. It's because when we want to do something with this, it's there and we can turn around a lot quicker. Exactly. Yeah. So what I think is happening, and this is, I think I've told you this analogy, Bruce. I hope I don't offend anybody with this analogy. It's not the, it's not the I'll most be politically honest. correct. <laughs> but uh, but this is this is my three layered cake analogy. So what I think okay. happened with COVID was, I think COVID created. Uh, so the way the way I see the market, you've got on the bottom the supply layer, and in that supply layer you have companies like Printforia, which are, um, you know, API integrated, digital to physical, uh, or API integrated direct to garment fulfillment companies that can take, you know, that we have an API, we can take any type of digital order sure. and produce it on demand. The, uh, the number of companies like that 
you can count on one hand in the United States, right? So it, it, including companies that do direct to garment, dye sublimation, any sort of person that says, hey, I have an API that you can integrate to send digital orders into, um, there's, there's almost, they're almost non-existent. There's only sure. a tiny amount of them. So um, COVID turned the entire supply layer into headless chickens. This is why hopefully I don't offend anybody with this analogy, but it's, 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 it's really, you, you know, illustrates what I think we saw. So supply layer, right? You go from having maybe 2% of this layer are companies like Printforia, companies that can support this type of new e-commerce driven on-demand, uh, you know, decorated apparel. The other 98% well, they're headless chickens because no, nothing, they're not getting orders from the same sources. Nothing works the same way that it used to. I can't get blanks because they're in various different stages. You know, everything's yeah, a mess, right? right? Uh, everything, nothing worked the way that it's supposed to work. So that's, that's, that's why we have this supply layer of, of headless chickens. Well, the top of this cake is the, the retailers and brands that service customers directly. So uh, any, any company, whether you're um, you know, Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, whether you're a brand, right? Like if I'm buying um, you know, a Nike shirt as a customer, I'm associating, I'm associating everything with Nike. Uh, or if I buy a shirt from J. Crew, a retail brand, I'm associating that quality with J. Crew, right? So that's the that's the that's how I would categorize the top mm -hmm. layer. Also, headless chickens, right? Because all of a sudden, you yeah, know, what do I do any, with the stores? What do I do? What do I do with all this product? Yeah. How do I how how do I and how do know I fulfill what the stores? sales? Yeah, exactly. And so you could see you could see this all playing out in a very spectacular, uh, extraordinary way in the beginning of COVID, where you had factories shutting down, you had small uh, little DTG shops that have six months of a backlog because mm -hmm. there's way too much demand for them to know what to do with. You've got um, you know, domestic screen printers and screen print shops trying to convert over to make PPE or trying to figure out how to participate in e-commerce somehow. But the, the big disruptor was e-commerce. The big disruptor, and, and to quantify it, I don't have the exact current data, um, but the last time I looked at it, we went from e-commerce being 14% uh, of retail, which actually, that that amazes me as somebody that, you know, what, uses that Amazon so low Prime so all high? the time. So low, you know, yeah. actually you think- I actually, I actually saw a similar, that same stat. It was like US Department of, uh, uh, it's like some US Department of, of something that, that, that reports that out. But I, I yeah. was very surprised too. But you know, um, that's what. The, but you know what's very interesting? And yes, it, right, because it went up. But I didn't see ever the updated. Where where are we settled at now? Or when was the last time? The you last, saw it? you know, the last I looked, where we were at thirty three percent of retail. So which which was about ten years of e commerce evolution that happened in three months. And that's mm -hmm. incredible because at the previous rate of evolution. We were already breaking everything every year. So you you know every single year you read about oh UPS is broken and DHL is broken and we broke all the carriers again because of the you know couple uh, you know the half percent increase in ecom. And sure. so you had the you know even um, in my wife's from Colombia and my uh, I think in Colombia e-commerce was four percent of retail um, before and you know now all of my in-laws 
are all ordering everything on, you know, these uh, on apps, right? In South America, it's Rappi. Here, it's, you know, Postmates and DoorDash. And everybody knows how to buy stuff online now. And so it, and it also, it takes, uh, there's statistics about like, it takes five weeks to form a habit, right? So everybody was quarantined for well over five weeks, ordering things on their phone, getting things shipped online. So we've created a new uh, standard for consuming things, a new standard for ordering things, and it's never going back, right? So, but, but, but what, uh, what I believe is that this has created the single largest opportunity in decorated apparel ever that we've ever seen. Because for the first time, we're now, uh, you know, this, this old school way of arbitraging things around the globe to kind of exploit at each step and shave pennies off at each step of the process, that's gone, that's obsolete now, right? Sure. So we need to do things more efficiently we need raw materials to be closer to the customer. We need manufacturing to be closer to the customer. Everything has to happen more efficiently because of e-commerce. And I think there, there's a very, very large misconception around direct to garment and screen printing and embroidery and which ones are for e-commerce and which ones are not. They're all for e-commerce. You can use every single one of those decorating techniques in an e-commerce uh, fulfillment application. Uh... It's different tools. You got me interested looking exactly. around at the data to try to get the yeah. average because I remember it, it peaked pretty high and then it kind of slowed, but it, it looks like it averaged around 14 to 15% for the year, which is higher than I guess 12% or 11% previously, but it definitely um, accelerated it. Now there are some different data sources here that's that's all around, but, but regardless, um, it, it is a significant shift. And as you say, it is. And I think from a very small shop to even a large shop, like it's a huge sales tool. I mean, that we, oh, totally. you know, we built our, our, our platform merch on this too, is just to help use e-commerce as a big sales tool tool for not just, uh, you know, for a, a picnic up into, I keep saying, I keep saying going to picnic and we need to do a little, like a family reunion pretty, or <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but uh yeah i mean you're right i mean it is it is interesting so like is it from your perspective it, it's just more of a balance of still the different types of orders or or you know do you does you know print for your other digital manufacturers really is it a dollars investment thing until they can get the quality up and the speed up or as you mentioned is it just chemistry like if we're doing what on what this is just as fast as it can go and the, the yeah. other thing that i think that's interesting too is you know there we talk we were talking internally the other day is you've got 3d printing right cool technology mm -hmm. you, you can create quick products right like this case very quickly um yep. as a prototype but now we need to make about five million of these cases over the next couple of years here right well let's go back let's make the die let's get this you know let's set it all up sure it's more expensive it's more time consuming but we gotta you know we gotta pump numbers here is that sort of what this is like or and, yeah and so i think that you got me going on this too because i I also see a huge investment more so from heavily out West as well, getting into apparel saying, Whoa, like, what is this? What, like, 
what's going on? Amazon's doing this and so on. Yeah. So going back to your example of a, of a, a headphones case, um, mm-hmm. bringing it back to like a decorated apparel example, the way, the way you can think about this is so, well, first of all, there's a couple requirements, right? So you have to have, uh, like the requirement for me as a, as a direct to garment producer, I have to be able to match the, uh, output that's expected with screen print. So that's even just that has been a challenge, right? Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of the little elephant in the room about direct to garment is that, you know, if you are trying to get retail ready quality, uh, it's, it's almost impossible. You know, you're going to get a print that has now we have since, you know, through, through our work with Obeljet, through all of the additional work that we've done at Printforia, um, we actually can show objectively uh, that our quality can match screen printing. And we can show objectively to, you know, the retailers and, and the brands that need this type of compliance that we can comply. So, th- so that, that is, you know, you have to be able to produce the output that's required by the retail industry. Mm-hmm. Well, screen, screen printers and embroidery shops don't have to worry about that. They already have the output that's expected by the retail industry. The other big, big problem is that, and this, this goes back to the headless chickens on the retail side is, you know, let's say, uh, let's say I get a call tomorrow from some massive retail brand that's just laid off their entire merchandising team, right? They just laid off like all their buyers, planners, you know, people that deal with all the factories, right? And they say, hey, Alex, we're finally ready to put everything online. We're finally ready to go all on demand tomorrow. <laughs> it's okay. Well, first of all, you know, I don't know if I have the capacity for you, number one. Second of all, do you speak my language? Well, what do you, what do you mean by that? And I'm saying, well, how, how are you going to do business with me? How are you going to send me orders? Because I don't have a customer service department. I don't have an order taking department. I don't have a pre-press department. I have an API that is a digital pipeline that you need a software engineer that speaks API language to integrate to, right? Do you have one of those? No, is the answer to that question most of the time, or it's a new thing for them. So even just being able to speak the language of being able to do on-demand and things through an API is going to take quite some time. Also, it's going to take a long time for the uh, direct-to-garment contract printing market to get to the quality level of where retail needs to be, right? So we already know that most of the quality out there in DTG is not good enough for most retail applications. We are. We also know that there's not enough capacity on the supply chain, and also that that extends into the raw materials as well. So, like, if Disney overnight was to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of screen printing and put all of our t-shirts uh, use DTG to produce all of our t-shirts," there's not enough printers. There's not enough ink. There's not enough pigment that's milled. You know, there's not enough nano milled titanium dioxide to make the white ink to, to do that tomorrow. So it's going to require a long time to build out this new execution layer that's dynamic and can take different types of decorated apparel requirements and, and kind of match them to different um, decorating techniques. And so going back to your example with this uh, 3D printed thing, well, let's take a you know, let's use, let's go back to Baby Yoda, right? I love Baby Yoda. I, th- I think his name is actually Grogu. 
um, because I did actually watch the series and it was awesome. But uh, I just I tried because I... <laughs> everybody kept talking about it. And I was like, let me let me try this out here. But, you know, that's the problem with I think that one I had to pay attention to that show where I was just trying to work and, yeah. and watch. And anyway, I always bring it up because if you're in the T-shirt world, if you've been involved in decorated apparel for the last five or plus years, as soon as that cartoon came out, it was like, baby yoda like everywhere, yeah, everywhere. right it was the biggest right. merch opportunity right. uh, for a character in a very long time so anyways going back to the baby yoda example if i'm disney um i'm not necessarily in the business of printing shirts or making shirts or doing tech packs or pre-press work or any any of that i might have uh, a merchandising team or an outsource function that that does that type of work but it's all it's all bottlenecked by very long lead times, huge batch requirements. So maybe on the super popular Baby Yoda design, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you know half a million printed in in Asia, half a million printed in Central America, under normal circumstances. Well, now I'm not gonna do that because I don't know what stores are gonna be open in Christmas. I don't know where the customers are gonna be. I don't know what the whole market. You know, I don't. I all the data that I have is now bad, right? So what I what I, but what I can do now is now I can take those designs, put them on all the dot coms, plus I could take thousands and thousands of other designs. If I'm Disney and I have the option to put up a thousand different baby Yoda designs on all these different e-com platforms that might have different designs regionally, uh, you might have that you, you get to be a lot a lot more experimental with designs. You probably have certain uh, designs that might sell way more in certain sure. regions if you can add this is the, you this know, regional is the elements to it at but, scale exactly but but uh that activity does not have to be pigeonholed into one production technique you know if i'm disney i can take all my one to ten piece orders I'll, I'll, you know anything that i just sold one to ten of direct to garment anything that i sold you know this many to this many. Well, now I've got it on a just-in-time model in short-run uh, screen printing. And what you're, what we're seeing in the United States right now is unprecedented demand because of that sh that shift. It, there's a network effect of way more demand for decorating domestically close to the customer because we're not doing as much of it overseas and bringing it in. The same thing's happening with garments. You know, if you look at um, the chaos that's happening in the printwear supply chain with garments, it's all related to the fact that in, you know, typically a company like Gildan, right, that's making who knows how many hundreds of millions of units per year for printwear, right? Uh, a lot of their activity is going to be producing container quantities of product mm -hmm. and then ocean freighting those containers over to other producing countries like Bangladesh or China or wherever to be printed on and then distributed all over the United States and Europe and Asia. Um, but now, you know, they might like all of that can basically be uh, all of those, all of those garments, instead of going to those massive factories overseas to be produced in 500,000 piece runs, they all need to come back into the United States, into the distribution layer and into into screen printing shops, into embroidery shops, into the distributors. And so you can just see in the demand and everything that's happening right now that the total demand for decorating has actually increased. 
significantly in the United States. It's just um, the the source of that revenue is from e-com platforms primarily. So that's where I think everything is headed. I think everything is, um, I, I don't, there is not one technology to rule them all. Uh, everybody, every market's different. Every customer is different. Every customer has a different uh, expectation of what their product should be. And I don't think that, um, you know, we should be thinking about this as a DTG eating screen printing or, you know, whatever eating DTG or anything like that. It's e-commerce eating traditional retail. That that's that's what's happening, and it's created, I believe, um, exponentially more opportunities for everybody than you know existed totally. potentially. Couldn't prior. agree more. Yeah, couldn't agree more. This is uh, such an awesome episode. I think probably our longest. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I'm curious. No. I, <laughs> I find it very interesting. I'm curious from you guys out there listening, just leave us a comment or shoot me an email, uh, Bruce at printavo.com. I, I love to hear just how to make uh, our show even better for you guys, what you guys want to hear too. So uh, love to hear your feedback. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Alex. This is Alex Feeling out of Printforia. They've got some really cool announcements um, coming out soon. So I'll just leave it up to that and you guys can be able to follow in on them. There's not a lot out there yet, but I feel like, I feel like there, there'll be some stuff coming soon. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, just a quick pitch about Printforia. We are, yeah. we are a con we're a contract direct to garment printer that is focused on building the execution layer that we believe retail and brands need. So we are hyper-focused on premium quality matching the screen print quality expectation in an on-demand fashion, uh, creating uh, the retail, the, you know, kind of creating a retail ready experience around, um, you know, how products are shipped, how products are received. Uh, we currently have, you know, one um, uh, contract printing facility up here in Vancouver, Washington, but, you know, the model, the, the sort of model that we're going after is a, is a regional fulfillment model. So we are open for business. Um, we don't have, you know, a, you know, uh, we're not easy to do business with because we just have an API uh, and, and, you know, you have to integrate with us to use us. But, um, you know, we're essentially trying to uh, close the gap on quality between, uh, uh, you know, print on demand and retail. And, um, you know, we we're also going to be public. We, we've already published and we're going to be keep public, keep publishing some materials about um, just the objective difference in our quality. So I'll share those with you, Bruce. I think it'd be really interesting for, uh, yeah, for you we'll to share with Yeah, we'll definitely link it below, especially yeah. for, for the guys that are really into this. I think it'd be very interesting to see, especially some of the work that they're doing there. So print for you. You guys can see it or just connect with Alex on LinkedIn. You're, you're super. It's feeling not what it sounds like. P-H-E-L-A-N. Yeah, feeling. <laughs> Um, and I love talking shop. I mean, I'm like, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. So, you know, feel free to reach out, uh, anytime. I, I, I love, love talking about this stuff. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys on the next Printable Pronouncers podcast in a week.